Oh, I'm so grateful. You have an English Standard Bible up here. I uh, brought the wrong Bible, and it was driving me nuts all the way here. I'm going to borrow the uh, pulpit Bible for our time in the Word together. I'm going to encourage you, if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. It's a joy to be with you today. It's a joy to get to be with my friend, Luke, this last week. Um, I, I know I say this, and I, and I want to continue to... Uh, Reiterate it, anytime I get a chance to come back here, he is one of my favorite people in the universe. And I know you are blessed to have him as your pastor. You have some amazing ruling elders. And I guess when I say some, I mean all of them are uh, uh, wonderful. I did not mean to leave anybody out of that. Um, but it's, uh, it's especially a, a great gift, and I'm, I'm grateful that they were willing to allow Luke to get away for a bit and for, uh, for us to have some time together to feed our souls together, to laugh together, to, to talk about the minutia of stuff together. Because there, there are moments where, and I'm sure you've experienced this with, with Luke, Luke and I tend to like to think like below the surface on a lot of things and to go where no man has gone before. We are the Star Trek of pastors, maybe, when it comes to some of our theology and some of the, nothing really terrifyingly bad, don't misunderstand, but, uh, but uh, it's fun to be able to just to think about some of these things together. Um, remember back in college uh, when I was a young Christian and we would stay up till two or three in the morning talking about the things of God. And then I got into the local church and Everybody was too busy, you know, being parents and doing jobs and, and the thought of staying up late and talking about these things uh, became uh, exhausting and, and, and even a little frustrating because you, because you wanted to shake people and say, don't you care about these things that we, you know, you pay us to think about all the time? But uh, so to have a time like that is a gift. Um, but when we come to God's word uh, on, on a Lord's Day like this, we come also hungry and expectantly. You know, it's not a coincidence, I believe, that, that this passage that we're going to look at, uh, the tail end of Mark chapter 6, is kind of sandwiched between two passages on Jesus feeding people with bread. So there's bread. It's a sandwich. You follow me? Um, that's, and of course, you need a little water in the middle of that, apparently, and, and we're about to get some, and it's going to be pretty hefty. So let's go to God's Word together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45 through the end of the chapter, as we look a little bit at something that I hope will speak to your heart. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, 
take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father, would you feed us on the word of Christ? May our hearts not be hardened. Feed us so that we can see you more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might recall the movie that came out several years ago with George Clooney. It was a movie based on a true story the, and, and a book as well. And the book was called The Perfect Storm and the movie was called The Perfect Storm. The basic storyline behind the movie and the book and the real life saga was the story of a little fishing boat called the Andrea Gale. And uh, it, this particular boat met a storm that, spoiler alert, proved too great. It had a sister ship, and that sister ship, around 6 p.m. on October 28, 1991, heard the following from its captain. She's coming on, boys. She's coming on strong. That was the last thing they heard from the Andrea Gale. It turned out that, that at that moment, and what is where they get this phrase, the perfect storm, uh, three things came on at the same time. Three things met this little shipping, uh, this little fishing boat uh, that uh, made it impossible. This perfect storm, these deadly elements of a front that was moving in from Canada toward New England. There was uh, a, a high pressure system that was building over Canada's east coast. And then there were the dying remnants of Hurricane Grace that had been stirring further south and were coming up that direction. All of that created this perfect storm. If you had just one of those pieces, the fishing boat would have been fine. It would have survived that, that experience, um, whether it was warm air or cold air or moist air, any of those would have been hardly noticeable and they would have had no problem. But Together, those three things were lethal. This morning, we look at a passage of Scripture where there was a storm, but please understand, this wasn't the perfect storm. But to the disciples, it probably felt like the perfect storm because it was just one of the many things that were hammering at the, at the disciples through the course of those several chapters in a row. Several moments where they felt like they were getting hit from every direction. Ministry demands and, and the challenges of hunger and the challenges of, especially in the ministry demands side of things, feeding several thousand people 
at the beginning of chapter 6. And people coming at them constantly, wanting some of that action. And you're going to see that even at the tail end of the passage we're looking at that that continues when they go to this new place. It seems to me that as, uh, as I kind of go about my life that there are plenty of things that will hit us. There are plenty of things that will come at us. And usually if they come one at a time in a nice orderly fashion, the way that we were taught to do in kindergarten, it would be a little bit more manageable. But it seems that they don't care about our calendar, that the trials and the struggles and the challenges and the COVIDs of this world, they don't come when it's convenient. And they hammer us and they hammer us and they hammer us. And in moments like that, when the disciples are feeling that, when they're feeling their exhaustion and when we're feeling ours, whether it's the, the wind of a demanding career or just raising kids, good kids or bad kids, just kids, raising kids can be a challenge. Fighting what seems like to be a battle with besetting sin can be hammering us. Hearing that we have to have another round of chemotherapy or, or, or surgery or physical therapy. Another ministry responsibility that crops up that we think needs to be attended to that is on our plate. One more dream maybe that we've had that seems like it's being threatened. A virus that sweeps over the land and the crazy politics of our day that cause us to have to try to decide, will I figure out a way to hide this friend's Facebook posts or just unfriend them altogether? It can get exhausting. It can wear us down and it can make us wonder if this storm is going to overwhelm us. And that's the kind of scenario they're dealing with there in the first century. The disciples are exhausted. And Jesus sends them off so he can dismiss the crowd, we're told, and sends them in the boat to the other side. And it's in that moment that the wind comes up. After a long, busy, exhausting day, this storm. This morning, as we look at it, I want to encourage you to look with me. And you, In fact, in your worship guides, I think it gives a little bit of an outline, so more spoiler alerts. Um, they don't make it in the perfect storm, and my sermon outline is the honest problem that we have, that the wind that is against us, the solution that we have, that we have a Savior who is for us, and a response that we're called to, 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 to follow through with, a, a, an incredible, challenging reality that just because life is hard, we still have ministry to attend to. That sounds a little different in the, in the way that it's written down there, but I think that'll make sense this morning. As we look at this passage, I want to encourage you to, first of all, look at the honest problem. The wind that's against us. Maybe you felt it when I said that, when I was giving you some different scenarios. You were thinking about your scenario, and you were thinking about the wind that was against you. And we look at the disciples' situation, we see the wind that's against them. As I said, when it's the perfect storm, it's, it's not... One thing, it's all things that are, seem to be pressing in all at the same time. And, and for the disciples, as they're feeling that pressing, the way that they know that they're in a perfect storm, and the way that we know that we're in a perfect storm, the way that, we're, that we know that we're 
beyond our capabilities is that the things that we normally would do, the things that we're normally able to handle, like we could see something coming on the horizon. Maybe we knew the in-laws were coming and it was okay because we've survived in the past. But the thousand other things that were hammering away at us at that moment made it feel like it was too much. The disciples, many of these are hardened fishermen. These, these are people who knew the Sea of Galilee. They knew their way around a boat. They knew their way around storms. But just like us, those things that you normally can handle, this is when you know it's too much. When the resources and the abilities that have served you well prove to be not enough. That's what they're experiencing as they're rowing. It says that they were straining painfully or, 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 or various different translations will address that. That they were pushing against the oars. That every movement forward seemed like three movement backs. And what should have been a relatively short trip across to the other shore proved to be several hours, middle of the night, straining, exhausting, heavy, work, that we all have those moments, the wind against us, the reality that even our trusted resources are depleted and our circumstances are greater than we thought we, than, than what we can handle, even though we thought we might have been able to. I know we experienced that when our kids were little. We experienced it when our kids were teenagers. We've experienced now that our kids are all uh, sort of out of the house, but keep coming back like boomerangs. Especially when our kids were little. When they'd be screaming and you were just praying, I want to be a charismatic today. I want the gift of interpretation. I cannot figure out what this kid is doing. I can't figure out why they're crying. Are they hungry? I just fed them. Are, are, are they tired? They just had a nap. Are they hurting? I can't see any marks on their body and, and, and we can't figure it out and we feel completely overwhelmed or when somebody comes to us and says, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to socially distance. I don't want to do the things that are, be, that are being required of me and we're not sure how to respond and how to act. As, as elders, as pastors, we struggle to know the best course forward and so we feel completely overwhelmed. And you feel completely overwhelmed because you realize your elders are completely overwhelmed. We feel this honest wind against us. This, all the things we thought we were pretty good at and pretty competent at keep slapping us in the face. But what's fascinating to me is it's not just the outside winds that can challenge us. It's our own inadequacies. It's our own insufficiencies. And we don't much like it when we're exposed in that. You notice how when Jesus does meet the disciples in the midst of that storm, as he's walking toward them and he tells them, and they see him, they, they, it says that they were scared. They thought he was a, a ghost. And we, we don't have a lot of detail on how they would have perceived and understood the whole concept of ghosts in that day or whatever was going on there. But nonetheless, they saw Jesus and they were not ready for the Jesus who was walking on water right in front of them. It wasn't the first time they'd ever seen Jesus do amazing things with storms. But they were terrified. They were scared. 
Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, he said. I think that a lot of the reason, and you'll see this over and over and over in the Gospels, whenever Jesus does some miraculous thing, it, almost every time they're scared. Almost every time they are uncomfortable. I think that's because somewhere deep down inside the human heart, when you get too close to Jesus, you have to start to do some business with him. You start to have to realize that he can have his way with you. He can tell you how to live. He can expect things of you. And it can feel overwhelming. In fact, he even says, I want to save you. And then we say, I want that. But what if you don't save me in the way that makes sense to me? What if you don't save me in a way and, and come through for me in a way that, that fits my narrative and the way that I was, feel, would feel most comfortable? What if my needs aren't met the way you want to meet them? I'm not so sure that I want you too close. What if the storm that you make me contend with isn't a storm that I, that's to my liking? What if the virus catches up with me on your watch? What if the sickness lingers longer than it should? What if it actually takes us out of this world and ushers us into the next and I have to leave behind family? What if enough money is just barely enough money when I want more than enough money? What if the timetable within which my children experience the fulfillment of God's covenant promises is not at the pace that I want? And in the meantime, they have to contend with all kinds of terrible decisions and terrible mistakes along the way. Hypothetically speaking, I'm sure I have no idea what that would be like. What if the job that you provide me isn't the job I wanted? And over and over and over again, we can struggle with his sufficiency. We can struggle to trust that the Jesus who stares us in the face is the one that we really feel comfortable being in charge. We don't like to let go of the steering wheel, do we? So you see, the wind against us isn't always out there. Sometimes it's just our own hearts. I remember experiencing that uh, in, in my own life, just feeling this, the, the, the way it would just kind of get stripped from me little by little. When I first went to Hannah City, I was leaving a church that I loved, and I was paid really well. I was extremely comfortable there. My family liked it there. We all liked it there. And then I started getting this tug that maybe I was supposed to go to Hannah City. And we knew if we're going to go to Hannah City, there's going to be things that we lose in the process. And then there are going to be some wonderful things that we gain. And there were more than we gained than we even realized we ever would. But it required about a $12,000 a year reduction in income. It required, it turned out, it required about 10 months paying two mortgage payments. Incidentally, stupid idea. Don't ever do that. Come talk to me if you want some financial advice on how not to do it. 10 months, we watched our emergency savings dwindle down to about, uh, about $250 and it was up over, it was around 11,000 when we started that journey. And so over the course of that year, we lost over $10,000 in income and over $10,000 in savings at the same time. I mean, sure, the math works out pretty well right there, doesn't it? 
he just kept saying, I don't think I'm, I'm enough yet. I think you still think there's something else you can hang on to. And he kept stripping it and stripping it and stripping it. And he does that in our lives all the time, doesn't he? He strips away the things that would cause us to find sufficiency in anything else. And maybe some, for some of us in that room, that makes us want to hold him at arm's length. And we're still terrified. Don't want to get too close to that kind of Jesus. But Jesus still came. And he still comes in the midst of our storms. And so he invites us to do what the disciples experienced, to experience what the disciples experienced. When we realize the wind is against us, we also have to see the clear solution, the Savior who's for us. The Savior who is for us, who's revealed in all kinds of incredible ways, and I'm going to get kind of preachy and do some alliteration for a minute. What kind of Savior is this Jesus? He's the kind who prays, who perceives, who passes, who points, and who participates. I'll slow down. I'll do them one at a time. He's the kind of Savior who prays. We have a Savior who intercedes for us. We know that, right? What was Jesus doing while the disciples were straining against the oars, while the disciples were experiencing their own version of a perfect storm, when they were feeling overwhelmed and exhausted and depleted and at the end of themselves? He was up on a mountain praying. Now, I believe he was praying for his own sake. He was praying for his own sense of depletion, I'm sure. But I think he was also praying for the disciples. And we know biblically Jesus expresses that, that he will do that over and over and over again. Peter is just among them. Of course, Peter is very largely influential in the writing of Mark's gospel, we're pretty sure. But do you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed for Peter? Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me, but I prayed for you. Not that you wouldn't go through the storm, because he went through the storm, and he did deny Jesus. He prayed for his restoration. He prayed for his strengthening that he might feed the sheep again. And, 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 and so Jesus is a praying Savior, and he prays for you in your darkness. He prays for you in your storm. He prays for you in your pain. He prays for you in your challenge. He prays for you in your weakness. He prays for you. But how does he know what to pray for? Well, he's a Savior who also perceives. He sees what we need. He saw the disciples straining. I don't know how. I don't know if that was a supernatural reality or if he just had a great vantage point on the hillside where he was praying while the disciples went across the lake. Maybe there was lightning in the sky that night and he was able to see that they weren't making any headway. We're, we're, we're uncertain. But we are certain of this. Our Savior sees us. That's one of those children's catechism things that we get asked, can you see God? And the answer is no. But He sees me. There's more to it than that, but I'm blanking right now because I didn't put it in my notes. I should have put it in my notes. There's probably a five-year-old in the room that didn't go to children's church that can answer that one better than I just did. The Savior sees with eyes of compassion. He sees. And you, you watch the gospel accounts. Read the gospels and you see this over and over and over again. Almost every time Jesus acts, it starts with, and he looked at him. He saw the woman, the widow of Nain. And every time he sees, almost every time, and I'm struggling to think of one that he doesn't, 
it says, and he felt compassion, or it'll use some sort of language to say that what he saw in his eyes moved to his heart, and then out of his heart moved action. And so when Jesus sees, it is no small thing, because Jesus who sees is the Jesus who acts. He perceives with eyes of compassion. Sometimes we wonder if he sees, sometimes we wonder if Ours is more like that dark night without the lightning. We're wondering if he even cares because we don't feel his presence when it's hard sometimes. But he perceives. But next he passes. Now, I, for, I, there are lots of ways to interpret this idea. When Jesus comes to them, it says in the ESV, the way that it describes it is he was, he was going to pass on by. And, I, and I, it almost feels comical to me. It's like Jesus is walking right beside them, knowing full well where they are. Oh, hey, guys. How's it going out there? How's the boat trip? But I tend to agree with uh, Dane Ortland, who says that this language of passing by is almost certainly the same language that would have been used in the in, 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 when written in Hebrew with reference to that moment when Moses said to God, I want to see your glory. And he said, well, you can't look full on at me and live, but I'll put you in a rock and I will pass by. I'll let you see my glory. And what is my glory? Me, my, my character, my my name, I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to declare my name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love to a thousand generations. And, and, and that whole declaration of Jesus passing by the disciples, and I believe is really a reflection of that same passing by with God's mercy, that, that moment when, when you're in the midst of that storm, and you're in the midst of that challenge, and Jesus comes near and breathes his mercy on you, brushes against you with his grace, reminds you of his love and his care, reminds you that you are not alone, that your sin hasn't kept you from him. This is what Dane Ortland says. The first words that Jesus uses to describe himself in his book, um, Gentle and Lowly, Right? Okay. Are similar to these words, merciful and gracious. First two words God uses to describe who he is, back with Moses. Merciful and gracious. God does not reveal his glory, says Ortland, as the Lord, the Lord exacting and precise, or the Lord, the Lord tolerant and overlooking, or the Lord, the Lord disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority and deepest delight in his first reaction, his heart is merciful and gracious. He gently accommodates himself to our terms rather than overwhelming us with his. So Jesus is passing by as a gentle reminder of his care, of his mercy. But to get there, then we need to see that he doesn't just pass by. He doesn't just pray and perceive and pass by. He points. He points away from the storm to himself. Do not be afraid. The storm's not that bad. That's not what he said. Do not 
be afraid, it is I. Scholars have a lot of, uh, they'll read through Jesus' sayings and they'll look for that ego a me. It is I language in the scriptures, in the New Testament scriptures. And sometimes I think they nail it and sometimes they don't. But scholars universally agree there are three very clear times where Jesus uses the language ego a me as a way to point back to the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. The one who is, I am that I am, he had said to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. Tell them I am saves you. And so Jesus in the New Testament scriptures and in the Gospels refers to himself as I am. And there are, again, there are three that scholars do not disagree on. I'll take them in reverse order. The last one is when Jesus is in the, is in the garden and he's about to be arrested. And they come to him and they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, it is I. And, they, and the soldiers all fall down. That's one of the times, one of the times where Jesus' identity as the God of the universe is, is on display. And the second one is in John 8, when Jesus is being challenged by his detractors, Jewish leaders pridefully rejecting his lordship and true identity. And he blisters them with the truth that they think they have a right to call Abraham father, when in fact their father is the devil. Verse 56 of John chapter 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and be glad. And they balked. And at this he declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He was declaring his name. He was pointing away from everything else to who he truly is as the, as the triumphant, faithful, covenant-keeping Savior. But the very first in the kind of the history as the, as the timeline would go would be right here in John chapter 6. Do not be afraid, it is I. Look at me. And this one who is and who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine does the really crazy thing at the end of this the kind of savior we have. He participates. He gets into the boat with us. The very fact that Jesus took on human flesh is Jesus getting into the boat with us. That he might be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the kind of high priest that we needed. He's the kind of high priest who gets into the boat with us. He gets into the turmoil and the challenge and the frustrations and everything that you're experiencing. The I am, the great one himself, comes in among us, participates in weakness has no place to lay his head, experiences the storms of life, just like we do. So the solution to the fact that the wind is against us is to know that we have a Savior who is for us, and most profoundly because he was willing to participate in this human experience with us, and is with us now. That's why I love the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. I'm with you. I am with you. I am with you. So what do we do with it? We know the storm. We know the wind that's against us. We know the challenges that are there. We know the Savior who is, who is for us. There's one more thing that happens. That as they get to the other side, as soon as Jesus gets in the boat with them, the storm does cease. Sometimes the storm doesn't stop right away in our lives, but Jesus is still with us. 
get to the other side, and Jesus says, okay, that was a rough one. Let's take a nap. I mean, that's what I do when I'm stressed. I like a nap. Maybe a peanut butter sandwich and a little bit of milk, and then a nap. They get to the other side after a heavy, busy day of ministry, followed by a brutal night of rowing. They jump right back into more ministry. Our response to the fact that Jesus is with us isn't to go take a nap. It's not to stop and rest, and, 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 except we do rest in the gospel, right? But it's to look at the next opportunity to serve him. But this is the beautiful thing. It's, it's to notice that the mission doesn't stop even when we're tired. It says in verse 52, they didn't understand about the loaves, though. They got right back into ministries. They go to the other side of the, of the lake. But before they do, 52, they did not understand about the loaves. What in the world is going on with that? I scratched my head at that one for a while. My, the one possibility certainly is there. They saw God do something miraculous. They saw Jesus do something amazing in feeding 5,000 people. And so, of course, he can take care of a storm problem. But I don't think that's what it means. I think what he's saying is, what they, when, when Mark is putting those words in there, they didn't understand about the loaves, is they didn't understand, because they could have... Jesus could have, or Mark could have said, they didn't understand about the last time Jesus took care of a storm problem. Back in chapter 4, another storm. Jesus had no problem with that storm. He should have no problem with this storm. He doesn't say that. He says he didn't understand about the load. They didn't understand about the sufficiency of Jesus. They didn't understand, didn't understand that Jesus was enough and that he would feed their souls and he would provide for their exhaustion and he would come through for them in the midst of that. That right when they felt like they were completely insufficient, and they were, how are they going to feed 5,000 with just a few bread, a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish? What they didn't understand was that Jesus can multiply our tiny little bit of energy that we have. Jesus can come through and provide the kind of strength that we need. I wonder if that was what was going on when, or what was going on in Peter's mind this moment when Peter himself wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But notice, this is still Jesus at work. These people that come from the highways and the byways and from the marketplace to the marketplace, they come here in those last few verses, running about the whole region, beginning to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. It's still his ministry. He's the one that's doing it. We're just participating in his ministry. It's his church. Not ours. It's really, frankly, then, because we're united to him, it's his storm not yours. It's his heartache, not just yours. Jesus is still at work. 
There's something missing in this story. I don't know if you noticed it. Remember, I said to you earlier that I believe Peter influenced Mark's writing of this gospel. Probably was his main source, though probably not his only source. Very possibly, some people believe that he was just sitting there and saying, okay, now write this next. Tell him about this. I want you to tell him about that. This particular moment in the gospel accounts is the moment where, in Matthew chapter 14, when they realized it was Jesus, but they weren't 100% sure. You remember what Peter said? Jesus, if that is you, ask me to come out there, walk on the water with you. Mark doesn't include that story. Mark doesn't include that account. Mark, who was highly influenced by Peter in writing the gospel account, does not include that. I mean, that seems to me like it'd be a pretty good moment. But I can kind of imagine Peter saying, no, 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 no. I don't want this one to be about me. I don't want this to be about me. And he'd say, yeah, but didn't he rebuke you? This is a perfect opportunity to not, not make it about you. He, he, he kind of, uh, God, you sank. Isn't that a kind of a big deal? You, you failed, but Jesus still pulled you up. We could make something up. This could be great. I like this story. This would be fun. You should put that one in. And no, I don't want to make it about me. And more than that, I don't want to make it about the storm. I don't want to make it about my faith. I want to make it about the object of faith. I want to make it about Jesus. I want to make it about the fact that when life is hard and things, and I tend to buckle and we all tend to buckle, that Jesus still has a ministry in front of us. A mission for us to accomplish. I want it to be about the fact that even though I failed to see Jesus, these people in this region had no problem. They were completely in the know on who Jesus was. Here we were, all of us disciples, struggling in the boat. We get to the other side, and the people flock to him, just saying, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, wouldn't that be enough? We struggled to get through a storm. And these people had no problem believing just a touch of his garment was enough for them. That's what I want this to be about. And that's what it's going to be about for us as we move forward, as we go toward these exhausting days ahead and we get challenged and we feel overwhelmed. To remember that Jesus who is with us is the one who's still going to continue to do his work. And people aren't going to be so worried if you are sweating and are exhausted because they didn't come for you. They're not trying to deplete your resources. They want Jesus. And what a gift that we can give them to Him. There's a story that uh, happened not too long ago about, the, and some of you probably heard this, and it's probably every pastor has told this illustration. So Luke, I apologize if I'm stepping on your toes. Oh, I was in my sermon next week. No, um, about this 12-year-old girl in uh, who was running in a, in a 5K, and she started down the road, and she was nervous. She was afraid she was going to be late, so she hurried there. By the way, I, my first uh, 10K, not that I ran it. I just watched it. Are you kidding me? Um, the first half marathon, my first five, uh, 10K experience at all was with, when my sister-in-law ran right here in Champaign. 
But this little girl was so nervous about being late to the starting line that she got there about 15 minutes early and they took off and started running and she didn't realize it, but she was not in the 5K starting point. She was with the half marathon. And she'd run about four miles and thought, I should be getting near the finish line by now. But there was no finish line in sight. Of course, her parent, her mom at this point is freaking out. She can't find her daughter. She didn't see her leave or go at the, at the right starting time, so she can't figure out where she is. For two hours, the police looked for her. By that point, this little girl, Lee Arianes Rodriguez Espada, finally thought, I just have to keep going. And she kept running. And she kept running. And she kept running. Her mom said she just wanted to finish the race. Two hours after I started looking for her, I see that one of the police officers has found her with a medal in her hand. She finished 1,885th out of 2,111 finishers. But she was among the youngest to run the race. And her mom said, I don't even know how she did it. I'm so proud of her. You know what's crazy about the gospel? Jesus doesn't think, I don't even know how they finished. He knows full well. Because he's the one that made it happen. But he still says, and I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because you finished the race, but because I carried you on my back and we finished the race together. Well done. In the midst of the storms, just remember Jesus. And the incredible gift that someday he's going to say, well done. By his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meander through an incredible passage of Scripture. Thank you for the opportunity to share this message with people who's, who's, who have been in my heart. Who are bringing you, Lord Jesus, to the lost and hurting people of Champaign-Urbana. I know they feel tired sometimes. I know as the pastor, I feel tired sometimes. I know Luke feels tired sometimes. But I also know that you'll carry us to the finish line. You'll bear us through the storm. Whatever other analogy we want to use. For the sake of the hurting, for the sake of the lost, and for the sake of our own souls. We praise you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.